Today, we're finishing our 11-week study on prayer that we've called Talking with God. Even though today is Palm Sunday, and you might think traditionally we do a Palm Sunday sermon, in some sense, this is appropriate because that chant that the people of God spoke exuberantly as Christ entered the city was a prayer. We have said it together several times now today. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And we might assume that Hosanna is just another one of those words for hallelujah or praise. But in fact, Hosanna is a prayer. The word means save us. Deliver us. So picture the scene on the day that the Passover lamb is chosen by each family who had come to Jerusalem. All Jewish families were required to come on the high holy day. And on the very day they chose their lamb for sacrifice, God offers his son as the true lamb of God. And as he's coming in, what are they shouting to him? Save us. Deliver us. That's the prayer of the human spirit. It's the prayer of our heart. And of course, many who cried that prayer realized he wasn't the savior they were expecting, turned on him, crucified him. But in doing so, he became the very lamb and savior that they needed and that all of us need. I just see such a parallel in our culture today. You know, there's a a spiritual hunger that's tangible. Uh, People are talking spiritually in ways that would not be expected in our postmodern age of enlightenment. And yet we're hungry. We know that what we can discover in nature and science doesn't touch our deepest longings. And in some sense, all of us are crying, deliver, deliver, save. We're looking for a salvation of, of form. And just like then, We look at Jesus and think, well, that's not the Savior I'm looking for. But he's exactly the Savior that you need. He's God's Lamb who came. Because of his death on the cross, we recognize that God demonstrated his love in Christ. And so we can come through that love, bypass the fear of judgment and condemnation, be restored to God that deep longing that all of us have, find its source in that relationship with Creator through Jesus. Because of that, we can become people who are in deep connection with God, and that's exactly what prayer is all about. Today, we're going to look at prayer as a cry for spiritual awakening and revival. We spent a lot of time talking about what prayer is as we work through the Lord's Prayer. If you're new this week, you may find it very helpful to go back on our website and also on iTunes. You'll find this entire series. A lot of it about how we pray personally, but how do we pray corporately? What is it when we come together as a people of God that's meant to be our central theme? And and I believe that you can find strongly in scripture that the primary theme of the prayer of the people of God together is a cry for the kingdom of God, a prayer for spiritual awakening. So in some sense, the very first aspect of the Lord's prayer is the cry of the people of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's about God's name becoming famous. 
Your kingdom come, which is his influence and reign extending to all people, and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, the life that God intended for his people, that blessed life to be extended to culture around us. That is spiritual revival. And that's what we're going to focus today, the important connection between God's people praying and the coming of spiritual revival. I'm going to read three different observations about society, and I'd like you to try to guess when these quotes were written. First quote, ministers today seem more concerned with political power in society than spiritual fervency in the church, and pop culture contributes to moral decay among our young people. Second quote, while marked by an increasing ethnic diversity and various religious beliefs, the nation's established religions, particularly Christianity, demonstrate a sterile spirituality. One pastor bemoans the obsession of gambling and rudeness while churches are attended at people's convenience. Third quote, College campuses team with students chasing after the latest philosophies. The more unbiblical, the better. The more educated a person you find, the less likely you are to discover a Christian. Meanwhile, churches are filled with people who listen to pastors preach, who then contradict the sermon by the way they live. You could think that these were taken right off of a recent blog written about the state of the church in modern culture, but the first quote came from Great Britain at the beginning of the era when the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield began preaching and brought about the first great awakening. The second quote was in the American colonies just before that great awakening jumped the Atlantic Ocean and began here. And the third quote about students, that was in the early 1800s, when enlightenment had invaded the universities just before the dawn of the second great awakening. We are not the first to struggle with being followers of Christ who are called to impact culture around us and to recognize that it's hard. It's, it's a battle. Often culture feels to be moving in the exact opposite direction. We can feel like we're at war with culture as Christians. And when we do that, we make a great mistake. We are not at war with culture. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Culture is just a context. It's a context that's influenced by the heart of people. And over and over again, we've seen in history, when God awakens his people, culture is blessed. So let's get past this idea that we're, that we're against culture. We're not against culture. We're for people. We're for Jesus. We're for grace. We're for transforming people and through that transforming culture and society. That's the great mission. That's what it means to say, your kingdom come, Father. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's worth remembering that God didn't stand up in heaven and just judge our lost culture. He took on human form in Christ, and he walked among us. Didn't reject culture. He came into it, and through his presence, he transformed it. That's what we're called to. How do we do that? Here's what you'll find out. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and throughout modern history, 
Every time there has been this return back to the things of God, this spiritual quickening and awakening of God's people, it has always been preceded by concerted corporate prayer of the people of God seeking the presence of God. In the people of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, you constantly have what we could call mini Mount Sinai experiences happening over and over again. Mount Sinai is where the covenant was sealed with God's people, where the law was given. And the people committed themselves to following God. And then they would drift away. And time and time again, there are those who cry out to God. There is a turning back and a restoration of the people. There's new leadership. There's a recovery of holiness. There's a putting aside of idols. There's a season of blessing that comes to the land, not just to Israel, but to cultures around them because of the spiritual quickening. Sometimes it's a formal renewal. Sometimes it's a spontaneous renewal. Sometimes it's leadership-led, and sometimes it's grassroots. But the one thing we see constantly every time there's a spiritual quickening, we see in Scripture these words in some form, Men cried out to God. Prayer always precedes the spiritual quickening of God. We're going to look in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. The main verse is going to be verse 14. It's up here on the screen. I'd like you to say it with me together. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This is into the period of the kings. The Mount Sinai experience was generations ago. And then we see a mini Mount Sinai experience when the new generation prepares to enter the land. And then at the end of Joshua, there's again a coming back and a, and a quickening to the covenant. And then we see the period of the judges where we see this whole cycle of God's people falling into mediocrity and disobedience and then being called back over and over again. And then we see that, that again in the whole period of the kings. And so what we're seeing here is a snapshot There's a path to spiritual awakening, and when we follow that path, there are definite marks of the spiritual awakenings. Now, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Let me give you the backdrop to this passage. Solomon is the son of King David. David is the one that finally united the nation of Israel. He was a man of war. He was also a man after God's own heart. He wrote so many of the Psalms, great passionate worshiper, and his greatest dream was to build the temple. God said, there's blood on your hands, and you've served well, but someone else will build the temple. And that was his son. And so Solomon builds the temple, and then they have this wonderful dedication. And again, it's a returning to the covenant. And were we to read chapter 6, What we would read is the prayer of Solomon on behalf of his people crying for God to visit them, reminding God in prayer that at one time in the tabernacle he was physically present and observable through the Shekinah glory. And he cries out, will you also dwell with us? 
seeking the presence of God. So you have this very same pattern. The whole building of the temple was rooted in this prayer that God would again make his presence known. So that led up to what we're about to read. And now we read this incredible encounter. Verse one, when Solomon finished praying this prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord that filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. So we see this building of the temple, this preparation of the altar. We could see that as symbolic of what God calls all of his people to do. What we are asking God to do in this city, we are preparing an altar, we are building a spiritual temple through our seeking God together. And we are saying, God, will you come and dwell here? Will you show up in your glory in this place? As the people of Israel built that physical temple, God showed up powerfully. And then we see a renewal of the covenant. Look with me at verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. I so want God to say that. I want God to say, I have chosen this place, this church, but not just this church, all churches who call on Christ in the city. And I have chosen this city as a place to make my presence known. And then he goes on and he says, when I shut up the heavens, so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. And if you're tracking with me, your response, if this is the first time you've read it, might be something like, what? (laughs) He said, I choose to be here among you because you sought me. And then he says, and when I bring the famine. Not if, when it happens. Let's read on and see if we can figure this out. When I do this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David, your father, did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away... 
and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land. We'll stop there. What we see is a restating of what the covenant is of the Old Testament. God says, I've chosen you as my people. As long as you seek after me, there'll be blessing. But if you turn away from me, that blessing goes away and you're not gonna get it from those other idols. Romans 1 says that what God does is when we rebel, he lets us experience the natural impact of that rebellion. You hear me say this often, but we struggle with the whole idea of God and free will. I believe fully that God lets you exercise your free will. When I say, God, let me do what I want, God says, okay, but then you have to bear the responsibility, the consequences of those choices. And that's exactly what he's saying to Israel. And what we have is precedent for centuries leading up to this account with Solomon. So God, I believe here, is saying when, as usually happens, at some point the people of God get cool and they begin chasing after other things, when that happens, rather than just turning you over to that, I'm going to give you a path back. And this is the path to spiritual awakening that we see happening over and over again. Verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So the first part of this is the path to spiritual awakening. And there's four things that he talks about. The first is, if my people. And what we learn from that is the path to spiritual awakening runs right through the heart of the people of God. It's in our hands to bring about spiritual awakening. If we're willing to follow God's path. If my people who are called by my name. It doesn't just begin with us. It begins in us. We are going to be transformed. And if we're not willing to be transformed, then spiritual awakening will not begin. But how encouraging. It's in our hands, it's in our power to pursue it. I forget what revivalist said when a reporter asked him, how do you bring about revival? And he said, get alone in a room, draw a circle, get down in that circle, and ask for God to begin a revival in that circle. And when that happens, get up, because the revival's begun. If my people who are called by my name. The second thing he says is, if my people humble themselves. Yuck. I don't mean that we don't value the idea of humility, but authentic humility is brokenness. It's honesty to our core. God's talking about our willingness to really see ourselves for who we are. To recognize that we have accommodated the world around us, that we have compromised, that we have given in, that we have sought after other idols, not necessarily religious idols, but cultural idols, social, physical pleasure, the different things that we've gone after and said, I'm gonna worship this, I'm gonna seek my fulfillment in this. As a whole culture, the church in America, we need to look at where our heart really is in relation to these things. Because what we do is we bless compromising each other. 
And in so doing, we justify our own compromise. Now, I'm not gonna pound the pulpit here, but I am gonna say, we cannot say we want God to show up in power if we're not willing to take a hard look at our lives and be willing to admit that we're where renewal needs to begin first. We're in need of a mini Mount Sinai experience. We're in need of returning once again to who God is, right? The third thing he says, if my people will humble themselves, and I've put these together, pray and seek my face, because I believe seeking my face here is really a commentary on the nature of the prayer that is required for spiritual awakening. In other words, what is needed is corporate prayer, not for our needs, not for our blessing, but for the presence of God, the tangible, living, transformational, dynamic, awe-inspiring, fall on the concrete before God, presence of God. God, we long for you. We're seeking your face, we're seeking your presence. One of the things that we talk about a lot here, and I almost fear that in talking about it so much, we've become numb to it, is this prayer movement that God has birthed in the city of Worcester. I rejoice to hear and see that um, we had a, a stronger showing of our people at the last prayer gathering, but that is not just about becoming a prayer movement. That prayer movement is crying for God to show up in our city. And I can't tell you how important it is that we join in that and be a part of it. I'd like to see the journey lead the way, showing up and being passionate before God about this. Seek my face, and then the fourth area, turn from their wicked ways. You see, spiritual awakening calls for a renewed commitment to holiness. Now, if we do a study on spiritual awakenings in our history since Scripture and American history, we would see these very things being at the core of, of what happens in the people of God leading to spiritual awakening that transforms and captures culture again. And then what we see is God's response to that. He says, if then, if my people, then I will. And he talks about three things, right? The first thing is, I will hear from heaven. The first mark of real spiritual awakening is there is an outpouring of God's presence. Just like we see in 2 Chronicles 7, think of that as a metaphor for what God has done over and over again in history. We cry out for God to come, he hears from heaven, and he shows up. So when a real spiritual awakening comes, people know that they're experiencing the presence of God. They know that he's real and he's here and he's at work. I rejoice when guests walk in and out of the space, which is a public high school, and when they walk in on Sunday morning, they feel like God's here. That's powerful, but I, I think it's just whetting our appetites for what we, really will happen when God comes in a powerful way that captures our attention and lets us know that he's on the move. I think we're just warming up to that. I'll hear from heaven. Second, I will forgive their sins. The second mark of real spiritual awakening is transformation in people. It begins with the people of God. People of God begin living right. 
There's a deeper joy because of the presence of God. And we become better people. The church becomes more attractive when people begin being transformed by the presence of God. We also see every time there's true spiritual awakening, new people brought into the church, new converts, changed by grace, sins forgiven, God's mercy bringing people to repentance and restoration in him. It's a powerful thing. You know what we have today instead of spiritual renewal? Church growth. Now, I want to be part of a growing church. We are a growing church. Nothing wrong with that. But we make growing churches our goal. When we were starting this church, I was doing research, and one of the facts was that in the mega church movement in the last 20 years, we have seen monster churches grow. 20,000, 30,000 member churches. But surveys say, in spite of massive churches, there has not been an increase of actual percentage of population attending church in any county in the United States. We're just transferring believers. When real spiritual awakening occurs, new people are brought into the body. Look in the book of Acts, 3,000 in one day, 2,000 in one day. Let me just give you a glimpse of what this looks like in the New Testament. For the New Testament people, Pentecost is our Mount Sinai. In fact, the symbolism, the rushing wind, the, the fire on each person now because the Holy Spirit's in them, God speaking supernaturally, all that goes right back to Mount Sinai. It's the New Testament Mount Sinai experience. And then you go through the book of Acts and over and over again, you see many Pentecosts taking place. God's people seeking God in prayer, being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not always demonstrative through supernatural manifestations, but it always results in people being emboldened, the gospel being preached, lives being transformed, and people coming to Christ. So we see that through the New Testament. And of course, we see it in history. I wanna read for you something Tim Keller wrote that underscores these observations about what really marks spiritual awakening. He says, spiritual revival or renewal is a work of God in which the church is beautified and empowered because the normal operations of the Holy Spirit are intensified. And these are what he observes, and they match what we saw in Scripture today. The marks of revival are the following. First, there is an outpouring of the Spirit on and within the congregation so that the presence of God among his people becomes evident and palpable. When this happens, sleepy or stagnant Christians wake up. There is a new and deeper conviction of sin and repentance. They experience a far more powerful assurance of the nearness and love of God, with the end result that Christians become both humbler and bolder at the same time. The second mark, as a result of this outpouring of the Spirit, new people are brought into the church and it begins to grow. On the one hand, the renewed believers create a far more attractive community of sharing and caring and often great worship. There is the beautiful community of the King. This can attract people from the outside. 
On the other hand, Christians who begin to experience God's beauty, power, and love put their relationship with Christ and the church first in their lives, and they become radiant and attractive witnesses, more winsome, less judgmental when they do so. Third, there is a full impact on the community surrounding the church, even the broader culture. Revivals produce waves of people who become involved in the works of social concern and social justice. Major social justice movements such as abolitionism had strong roots in the revivals. In fact, the American Revolution was fueled by the Great Awakening. Did you know that? The idea of personal accountability, personal liberty, personal religion, don't take my word for it, check out PBS. Major social justice movements such as abolitionism had strong roots in revivals. The reason for this is that real holiness changes the private and public lives of Christians. True religion is not merely a private matter, providing internal peace and fulfillment. Rather, it transforms our behavior and our relationships. For instance, the 1904 revival in Wales created many social changes. Life in the coal pits was transformed. Workers and management engaged in prayer meetings on company time. Poor law guardians commented that many working people came to take aged parents home from the workhouses where they had been sent so inconsiderately. Long-standing debts were paid, stolen goods were returned, and crime rates plummeted. Wouldn't you love to see that happen in Worcester? In summary, these three marks of revival may be small or large, long or short, dramatic or quiet, widespread or localized. They are subject to different degrees, but when these renewal dynamics are in place, the effects will be seen. Without these dynamics in place, the church can grow in numbers, but not in vitality. And thus the growth will not be a lasting, transformational, eternal kingdom growth. This is what we're about, bringing the kingdom of God. Listen to me, it's in our hands to bring about. If my people, we can birth an awakening in Worcester. Just think about that. What would that mean in Worcester? If God showed up in a powerful way where people around our city knew that there was something incredible happening. What if it wasn't just the journey, but it was other churches uh, of all ethnicities in our city begin to experience the powerful presence of God? What if it makes the newspapers? What if Christians get so right with God that they actually become attractive people? (laughs) The kind that people not only want to be around, but want to be like. And then how would that change our city? You know what I picture? Let's just imagine it for a little bit. What if the head of every gang comes to Christ and gang warfare ends in our city? Could you and I do that? No. Could God do it? You better know the right answer to this. If my people, God could do it. If my people, what could God do? Prostitutes would go out of business in our city. Wouldn't that be incredible? You know that happened in one of the Great Awakenings? I think it was the Welsh Revival. 
Prostitutes started going to church to these revival meetings, and the newspapers got a hold of it. And one woman was asked, why are you going to church? And she said, well, first of all, business is really down. (laughs) But secondly, these people treat us like we're God's children. Their lives were changed. Wow. What if our prisons could be emptied? How big could God work? Well, you may think I'm foolish for even suggesting those things, but here's one thing I know. I have learned that to be a follower of God is to expect more than I should expect. Our God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all I could even ask or imagine. I can imagine a lot. Now, I don't know if when God shows up, that's what it's gonna look like, but I'd sure like to find out. That's why we're here. That's why God's birthed the journey. We're not the only place where we want God to move, but by God, let's be a place where he moves. Let's be responsible for what we can be responsible. Let's be the if my people who humble ourselves and get real with God and let his mercy transform us bring forgiveness, and then let's let him heal our land. Can you commit to that? I want to show you something that we're doing. We are formally declaring prayer as one of our core values. Obviously, it's always been important to us, but if you will take your bulletin and look on the back of the bulletin, I feel like it was a failure on our part to presume that we would pray and therefore not stated as something that is the primary work of God's people. And so now if you look, you'll see it, you'll see it on our website from now on, prayer. And th- these three things are our ultimate statement about it. The work of the church begins and proceeds and ends in prayer. Prayer is the key to exalting and experiencing God and discerning his wisdom and will. Prayer is the foundational work to seeing the kingdom of God revealed in Worcester. And so we are going to pray. What would it look like here if we began to be a people of prayer? Yeah, maybe we could have a more formal prayer ministry. Maybe it should be top-down. But you know what I think we should do? I think when you ask people how they're doing and they tell you, you should pray with them. (laughs) I think God would be showing up if we walked out in the lobby and people were having conversations, at the end of those conversations, people were just leaning in asking God to bless circumstances in their lives. Why do I need to program it if we're a people of prayer? Why don't we just do it? I'm challenging you to minister to one another, pray for one another. I'm challenging you to join in on the city prayer movement. Right now, if we showed up, we would multiply the prayer gatherings by about 20 times over. Wouldn't that be awesome? I'm challenging you to to pray in your life groups. I'm calling on the church council to make our primary business praying before God. Let's begin to see in our personal lives, prayer, as we learned last week, as our element, as our environment, as air is to our bodies, as water is to fish. Prayer is our environment. We live in it. We pray without ceasing. We breathe in the presence of God. We breathe out our love for Him. We breathe in the presence of God. We breathe out our concerns to Him. We breathe in the presence of God. We breathe out your kingdom come, your will be done right now in this moment and in my life and in this place. Let's be this.
Would you join me in that? Would you stand with me and let's commit ourselves to being this? Abba, Father in heaven, we do want you to be famous. That's our first prayer of every prayer. Let it be our heart's greatest desire. Isaiah 26.8, let that be true in our lives, waiting earnestly for you. Your name and your renown are the desires of our heart. Let that be true in us. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Lord, there's much in our lives that is not surrendered to you even though we call you Father. We maintain control. We have our own little thrones. We have other idols, passions that grab our affections. Father, bring your reign into our lives. Take full control, and in doing so, fill us with your spirit. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, let us have a renewed passion for bringing glory to Christ, being living sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to you, which is our true worship. Let us be worshipers not only on Sunday morning, but in our lives, and let people see lives that are truly good and godly and loving with the love and grace of God. And then, Father, we know your will is that none should perish. Your will is that the city of man is blessed for the sake of the city of God. And we ask, Father, we ask, Father, that you would come, that you would show up, that you would dwell here in our lives and in this place and in this city. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen.